This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. It's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Major funding for this podcast has been provided by Public Welfare Foundation and the Pulitzer Center. Hey, y'all, this is episode three of a five-part series. So if you didn't start from the beginning, trust me, it'll all make a lot more sense if you stop right here and go back to episode one. It's been rough. It's been rough. I ended up in life without possibility of parole. Something I didn't even do. That is Ricky Kidd who, in 1997, was found guilty of first-degree murder and then sentenced to four life terms without the possibility of parole. Those were some dark times for me. My whole world was turned upside down. In America, the way our justice system is supposed to work is that whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're innocent or guilty, you get a fair shot when you're accused of a crime. You get a lawyer who helps you make your case before a judge or a jury. But what happens when the police conduct a bad investigation or they miss clues, when a prosecutor charges the wrong person and then bends the rules to make her case? And what happens when the defense lawyer the person who's there to catch these things doesn't have the bandwidth or the resources to do that. When you have a bad investigation and a overzealous prosecution and a lame defense, chances are you're gonna get a wrongful conviction. In the years since his conviction, Ricky has enlisted the help of an investigative journalist turned private investigator. It it almost hurts me to go back over this case because This has been too long without any resolution. And a former public defender turned trailblazer in wrongful convictions. A man who spent his career trying to fix the wrongs created by the public defender system he used to work for. You have to have somebody who functions as counsel. And the lawyer is what tests the adversarial system. And both of them say the system failed Ricky Kidd. A warm body with a pulse and a law license is not enough. Do they have a nickname for public defenders? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they call them uh, public pretenders. These are my docket cases. Probation. I have 119 open cases. 131 open cases. Hey, here's your 200 cases. You have court in 20 minutes. It's across the street. Go. I feel the stress of 150 souls on my back. And you know that some of them are slipping through the cracks. Hello, this is a free call from... Ricky. I 100% believe that I'm in prison today because of the Missouri Public Defender System. This is Broken Justice, a show from the PBS NewsHour about the public defender system in Missouri and what it tells us about justice in America. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Frank Carlson.
For more than 40 years, the PBS NewsHour has provided solid, reliable reporting that has made it one of the most trusted news programs on television. From news headlines to analysis, millions of people rely on the context, independence, and balance the NewsHour offers. Watch, read, follow the NewsHour on broadcast and online every night. Frank, after Ricky got convicted, how did he get this team to start working on his case? Well, it didn't happen overnight. Ricky sat in prison for six years before he found this private investigator named Dan Grothaus. Dan was the first one to really dig into what happened to Ricky. Hey, nice to meet you. Kind of easy to spot. Did you, uh, did you find any? When I met him at my hotel in St. Louis, I asked him to bring his box of Ricky's case files. So this is when he started pestering me with letters and uh, every once in a while he would call me in the office, and I had an office. Ricky started writing Dan back in 2003, six years after he was convicted, and he kept writing him and writing him and writing him, begging him to look into his case. And if there's one thing I've learned about Ricky in talking to him over the last year, it's that he is tenacious. But Dan knew Ricky couldn't afford him, though Ricky tried. He sent Dan a check for $500. <laughs> Never cashed that check. And, I, and I've explained this to Ricky at the very beginning. I said, look, you know, if, if you got $50,000 or if you got a relative who won the lottery, you know, I'll, I'll work for money. But, uh, you know, I can't do this and take your money. A couple of years after Ricky first wrote Dan, his business had been doing well. So he decided to take some time between Christmas and New Year's to poke around Ricky's case. What I would first try to do is prove he was guilty because that might be the easiest thing for me to do. And if I could prove he was guilty, then, you know, we would just cut to the chase and we'd call it a day. If I could not prove he was guilty, then I would make every effort then to prove he was innocent. And as Dan went through Ricky's case, going back to talk to witnesses, combing through old police records, he pretty quickly saw that things weren't adding up. And the more I dug into it, it was pretty clear to me that, that he was, in fact, innocent and we know who the, the actual actors were. In 2006, Dan took what he found to Sean O'Brien. And as you heard earlier, he's a law professor known nationally for his work overturning wrongful convictions, especially for people on death row. Dan Grothaus started the investigation and then came to me and kind of begged me to take the case. I looked it over and I agreed to do it. Ever since, Sean has represented Ricky as his pro bono lawyer, working alongside the Midwest Innocence Project. So Sean getting on board with Dan says they both believe something went wrong, right? What did they find that made them believe that? Well, there were a lot of things, but you can break them down into three basic categories. First, there was Ricky's alibi. It was rock solid. Number two, the state's case was weak. And number three, Dan and Sean found evidence of who actually committed the murders, and that evidence didn't point to Ricky. And both Dan and Sean say Ricky's public defender didn't do enough to investigate any of those things. I would bet that an investigator that knew what they were doing could have spent 20 hours on that case and come up with some reasonable doubt, maybe 30 hours. So is that a lot? Is that a no, that's not a lot. I mean, that's three or four days with lunch. Three or four days with lunch. That doesn't seem like a lot, but there's a lot to unpack there. So why don't we start with the alibi? Sure. Ricky says that on the day of the murders, he was with his girlfriend, Monica Gray, all day. 
not all alibis are created equal. Some alibis are better than other alibis. And you thought Monica was a good alibi? I, I knew Monica was a, a good alibi. In court, Ricky and Monica both told the same story. They'd started the day with some errands, including a trip downtown to Ricky's sister's office, just after 11 a.m., which would put them miles away from the murders around the time they were taking place. Afterward, Ricky and Monica drove out of the city to the county sheriff's office. I knew that I had wanted to go apply for a handgun permit. Oh, that's right, because part of Ricky's alibi was that he had been at the sheriff's office on the day of the murders, right? Right, and so Ricky filled out this handgun application. I couldn't get it. The lady had told me I needed a voter registration or some other document, I believe. So Ricky left without the permit. And later that evening, after he got home, Ricky says he found out that George Bryant, a drug dealer and a friend of his, was dead. And so was another man, Oscar Bridges. I sat there, shot. And people backed up Ricky's story of where he'd been that day. Yeah, Ricky's sister, his sister's co-worker, and other people they saw that day. There was no wiggle room. You know, Ricky was with Monica. Monica was with Ricky, you know, for like six hours before and six hours after and during the crime. So it was a complete alibi. So Ricky has an alibi. People back it up. Why didn't it fly in court? Well, Dan says that comes right back to Ricky's public defender, Teresa Anderson, and what she didn't do to interview and prepare the most important alibi witness, Ricky's girlfriend. She prepped me for court uh, the day of court. Here's Monica remembering the run-up to the trial. The only time I met with her was to give her Ricky's clothes for court, but she prepped me for court the day of. Monica says they didn't go through what questions Teresa would ask her on the stand, what the prosecutor might ask her during cross-examination, how Monica could prove she was remembering February 6th, the day of the murders, and not some other day. I said, what am I supposed to say? She was like, the same thing you told the police, and that's it. That's it. She didn't prep me at all. I spoke with Teresa about this, and she disputes Monica's account. She says they spoke multiple times by phone before her day in court. But whether or not Teresa and Monica spoke before then, Sean O'Brien, Ricky's lawyer now, says Teresa didn't start working on Ricky's case soon enough. You can't really develop a theory of defense. You can't investigate what witnesses tell you to see if you can independently verify it. And remember, Sean isn't just a wrongful conviction lawyer and a law professor. He's also a former public defender, and so he knows how the system works. And Sean and Dan both say that Ricky's public defender started investigating too late to effectively corroborate what the alibi witnesses were saying, not just Monica, but the others too. And so that made it easy for the prosecution during trial to poke holes in their stories. Sean says the cross-examination of Ricky's witnesses went something like this. When did you first find out you were going to be a witness? Well, last Thursday. Well, how do you remember in March of 1997 where you were on February 6th of 1996? How do you know it's the right date? Well, you know, and, and the witness doesn't have a good answer for that. So it's easier for the prosecution to knock down the alibi witnesses. Exactly. But there was still that visit to the sheriff's office. If Teresa Anderson could prove that Ricky and Monica visited the office on that day, she could prove they were telling the truth about where they were on the day of the murders. So to do that, she introduced the gun permit application, the one Ricky had filled out. And sure enough, the date on that application said February 6th, the day of the murders. The computer timestamp on that application also matched that day, February 6th, 
that all sounds good for Ricky and exactly what Teresa should have been doing. Right. But then she called on the supervisor of the sheriff's office to verify that information. And the supervisor told the jury that the timestamp on Ricky's application didn't mean it was submitted on that day. It could have been submitted the day before. It also could have been sent in by mail. And so it didn't really prove anything. When it comes to handling paperwork, never talk to the supervisor. And the reason for that, Sean says, is that the supervisor wasn't the person who actually handled the applications. But when Sean and Dan went back to investigate, they found the clerk who actually processed the applications in that sheriff's office on that day. And that clerk said that based on the timestamp, Ricky's application had to have come in on the day of the murders, and that the office almost never got them by mail. It backed up Ricky's alibi. It it just makes it more and more likely that Monica's telling the truth about what day it was that they went out to the sheriff's office. But because Teresa didn't present those things in court, the jury never heard them. After the break, we'll tell you about the second problem with Ricky's defense, the failure to knock down the prosecution's story. For complete coverage of all things politics, check out NewsHour's regular politics podcast in your Apple Podcast app. Search PBS NewsHour Politics. From Capitol Hill to the White House, from the 2020 election to hot-button political issues, the PBS NewsHour Politics Podcast is your one-stop place to get independent, balanced coverage of political news. Okay, so we just went through the first failure in Ricky's defense. What about the second one? Yeah, the second was the failure to knock down the state's case. The state relied on two eyewitnesses. The first was the daughter of one of the victims, the little four-year-old girl who made that 911 call. Four days after the murders took place, she was brought in by police to look at a photo lineup, and Ricky Kidd's photo was there. So was the photo of a guy named Marcus Merrill. That little girl picked out Marcus Merrill right away, but she didn't pick out Ricky. And remember, witnesses said they saw three black men fleeing from the scene of the crime. Weeks went by. Police kept doing interviews, but by April, they only had one suspect in custody, Marcus Merrill. So in mid-April, two months after the crime, detectives brought that little girl back for another lineup. It's the little girl in a room with people who know who they want her to pick. And and she's already seen a photograph of one of these guys in the video, Ricky. Right. Ricky's the only one in the lineup who she had also seen in the photograph. And allegedly, she picks him out. Fast forward to the trial. The prosecutor calls the little girl up in court. When is your birthday? April 8. There's no audio available from this trial, so what you're hearing is a reenactment of the court transcript. And that's coming up soon, isn't it? Yes. The prosecutor asks the little girl to look around the room and point out the men who were at her house that day. Ricky Kidd and his co-defendant, Marcus Merrill, are sitting right in front of her. The defendants are both black men and their lawyers sitting right next to them are white women. You couldn't have a more suggestive lineup, you know, because you've got a lineup consisting of white lady, black guy, white lady. Can you look around and do you see either of those two men that were at your house that day with your daddy? She looks around. No. She doesn't point to anyone. The prosecutor asks her again. You don't see them? You don't see them here. No. The little girl doesn't point at anyone. She never identifies Ricky in court as the killer. 
So the state only had two eyewitnesses, and one of them fails to identify Ricky in court. So what about the other one? Yeah, the second was a neighbor of the victim's, and he did pick Ricky out in court. He told the jury that he saw Ricky come out of the victim's house that morning like quote-unquote the Terminator and gunned down one of the victims in broad daylight with a gold-plated forty-five. And as you heard in the last episode, that neighbor said he didn't just think it was Ricky. He told the jury he was quote-unquote 2,001% sure it was Ricky. And so it was crucial for Ricky's public defender to impeach that witness, to knock down his story. And she tried to do that, but she didn't get anywhere. But then later, when Dan and Sean went back to investigate, they found so much evidence that she could have used to raise questions about this witness and his story, starting with the fact that other witnesses said they hadn't seen that neighbor standing where he said he was, right in front of the house when the murders took place. Where he was would have a significant impact on how well he was able to ID who he saw. Also, Sean eventually learned that the neighbor and a friend were smoking weed on the morning of the murders. That didn't come out during trial either. And so Teresa could have used that fact, plus everything else, to undermine his story and to undermine the state's story of what happened. Okay, now we've gone through the alibi and the state's case, but there was also a third problem, the question of who actually committed the murders. Now, Dan and Sean figured out who the real killers were, right? Right. So once Dan became convinced that Ricky wasn't involved, he started looking at the people Ricky said committed this crime, including his co-defendant, Marcus Merrill. And buried in police reports was the name of a friend of Marcus who made everything clearer. Eugene Williams. I remember meeting with him. He did not want to be found. Eugene told Dan that on the morning of the murders, Marcus Merrill was at his house when two other men came over, a father and a son. Eugene said Marcus talked with the father and son about robbing a drug dealer, just like George Bryant, one of the victims. And the father had a gun, a 45, the same caliber found at the crime scene, and the same kind that the neighbor, the state's eyewitness, described. Wait, what this guy is telling Dan seems like it alone could have changed everything. Exactly. And that's what Dan and Sean and Ricky think, too. And what's crazy is that even though Eugene was listed in police reports, he said detectives never talked to him, and neither did Ricky's public defender, Teresa Anderson. When I met Teresa earlier this year, I asked her about all the things that Dan and Sean turned up. How does looking at th- that kind of information, how, do, how should we think about that? I mean, yeah, I think there's always things that you miss. I mean, there's no question about it. My investigator and I did go out to the scene numerous times, but a lot of, a lot of times people aren't around or they don't want to talk to you because they know why you're there, and um, there are going to be people that you miss, and that's just the way, unfortunately, that it is. You know, Ricky, when I've talked to him about this, he said when he was first convicted, he thought that he had a bad lawyer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he did. <laughs> Uh, he sent, but he says he's since learned that he didn't have a bad lawyer. He had a bad system. Yeah, yeah. And that his lawyer didn't have time to do all the things that he would have wanted her to do. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I will say that the verdict was shocking to me. I mean, it was you know emotionally hard. And so I can totally see where he walked away, going, "Oh my God, I cannot believe this just happened to me." You know. After this conversation with Teresa, I kept thinking about how hard it is to separate the individual lawyer from the system that she's operating in. I mean, like so many other public defenders, Teresa went into this line of work to help people like Ricky. And by all accounts, she went on to become a great lawyer. 
Sean O'Brien, Ricky's lawyer now and a former public defender, he sees that same conflict. I feel bad for the public defenders. I really do. They're great people and they have good hearts. And uh, I feel terrible for them, but I feel worse for their clients. The sixth Democratic debate in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election will be held on December 19th in Los Angeles. Continuing its long tradition of providing a broad range of political coverage to the American public, the NewsHour, along with Politico, will host the debate. Watch on broadcast and online, Thursday, December 19th. All the failures we've heard about so far were things that happened in Ricky Kidd's original trial, well before Ricky ever met Sean and Dan. Right. But things kept going wrong for Ricky when he tried to appeal his original conviction, in large part because he had to rely on the same public defender system that had just failed him the first time. In his appeals, his new public defenders were supposed to investigate Ricky's claims and look at the things that went wrong. Here's Sean O'Brien again. One of the most glaring things about this case is that in all of Ricky's appeals, uh, where he was represented by public defenders, the word innocent does not appear one time. There is nothing they file that raises any question uh, that might make a judge deciding the case think there may have been a mistake here. His own lawyers never raised the possibility that their client was innocent? Yeah. And Sean says if you don't raise these kinds of claims in your appeals, it makes it much harder to argue them later. And so with most of Ricky's appeals denied, as far as the state was concerned, his case was done. The process had worked. A convicted killer was behind bars for the rest of his life. It's been rough. It's been rough. I ended up in life without possibility of parole for something I didn't even do. It fell on my face, and I just caught myself trying to deal with it the only way a 21-year-old thought or knew how to deal with it. Early on, Ricky was held at Missouri's maximum security death row facility. And at first, he didn't think he'd make it. It was dark, even when it was light. Uh, It was cold, even if it was hot outside. And it was definitely scary for a 21-year-old, well, 22 at that time, who'd never been in prison. But Ricky was determined to keep working on his case, finding some way to move it forward, and to prove his innocence. And in the meantime, he also started working on himself. He says he took all the classes he could in prison. Then he started teaching them. That's what I think I've been successful at, despite the ugliness of what a wrongful conviction can produce. It also, for me, I allowed it to produce some good things, and perhaps transferable to where if I am able to reintegrate back into society, I can uh, continue along this same line and, and be useful in some type of way. It was during this time that Ricky convinced Dan Grothaus, the investigator, and Sean O'Brien, the lawyer, to take on his case. They worked for years, and finally, in 2009, 13 years after Ricky was first locked up, a federal court agreed to hear his innocence appeal, the kind he'd been waiting for. And Sean thought the hearing was off to a great start. On the first day, as they were waiting for a witness to arrive, the judge said, you know, one thing that really worries me about this case is that actually he, kid, he really had poor representation. God almighty. And then he continued, the Supreme Court says that everybody has to have counsel, but I'm looking forward to the day that something goes up there and says they didn't get any representation because the states won't provide money for our public defender system. Once the hearing got started, Sean called Dan to testify to everything he'd found, nearly a decade after the murders. 
he introduced testimony from the clerk from the sheriff's office. He called on Eugene Williams, the man who saw Marcus Merrill and the father and son at his house on the morning of the murders, and who said Ricky wasn't there. He called on the neighbor, the state's primary eyewitness, and poked holes in his story. And then, the big moment. Would you state your name, please? Marcus D. Merrill. They called Ricky's co-defendant Marcus Merrill, the other man convicted of this crime. Basically, I guess when he got up, you know, he ran into me, and my gun went off. There's no audio from this 2009 hearing, so again, what you're hearing is a reenactment of the court transcript. He told the court in vivid detail how he and the father and son committed this crime together. In fact, did you see Ricky Kidd at any time on February the 6th, 1996? No, sir. He was not involved in this at all, was he? No, sir. Wait a second. So on top of everything else, you've got Marcus Merrill saying he committed this crime with two other men and that Ricky had nothing to do with it. So... How is Ricky not immediately released? Yeah, it's shocking. But the judge said that Ricky still had a legal problem, and it's pretty technical. In this federal court district, the rules said that if your lawyer in your original trial could have discovered this information and didn't, let's say because she was too busy handling other cases, well then tough. Those things can't be introduced at this point. That seems wild. But, okay, what about Ricky's co-defendant and what he just said, Marcus Merrill, that Ricky wasn't involved in all? That that was new, wasn't it? You're right. That was new. That was the first time he'd said that in court. But then the judge said it wasn't reliable because in his eyes, that co-defendant had a reason to lie, like the possibility of getting a reduced prison sentence. And so the judge said he didn't buy it. Here's Sean O'Brien. You know, I, I have never been more discouraged by an order. It's difficult to explain to lay people. Um... And not because lay people aren't smart, because the rules are stupid. (laughs) It's just the ability to emotionally detach uh, from what's really at stake, the value of Ricky's life. They spit back in my face. You had lawyers. I had your failed public defender system lawyers, though. Oh, yeah, well, oh, well. And then brush that under the under the carpet, and somehow that's supposed to be okay. It's not okay. Uh, and it should never be okay in the, in the, in the nation that, that, that we live in. Uh, that should never be okay. It baffles me, you know, how the system could have not allowed Ricky out that day. That was 2009, 10 years ago. But Ricky's team didn't give up. They fought for years to get Ricky back into court. And this year, they finally got another hearing, another chance to lay out all their evidence and prove Ricky's innocence. Meanwhile, as Ricky's been fighting his fight, public defenders in Missouri have been fighting their own battle to take control of their caseloads. At some point, when you get your face rubbed in the mud enough, you gotta gotta stand up and fight back. And they told us they found changing the status quo has a cost and not all of them are willing to pay it. How do I convince someone to work here? Will I be able to practice ethically? Uh, Not always, no. Am I risking my law license by working here? Yeah, probably. I wouldn't work here. That's on the next episode of Broken Justice. Broken Justice is hosted by me, Amna Nawaz. Reported by Frank Carlson and produced by Vika Aronson. Editing by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. Engineering by Tom Satterfield. 
Production assistance from Chris Ford. Fact-checking by Maya Lene Bura, Amber Partita, and Harry Zahn. Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Segura composed our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. The actors in this episode were Dave Coles, Don McClurkin, Gretchen Frazee, and Carrie Gray. Thanks to Carrie's mother, Latasha Jones. Sarah Just is our executive producer. Let us know what you think of the show and send your questions to podcasts at newshour.org. Tweet us at NewsHour and leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. And check out the show extras on our website. That's pbs.org slash newshour slash podcasts.